It was almost a year ago, I was sitting in a doctor's office with some kind of sickness. It wasn't just the sickness, oh, I feel kind of bad today. It was a sickness where, okay, I have something. So I, for reasons uh, that I can only chalk up to my uh, physical uh, brilliance of who, who God has created me to be, I have a very good gift of getting strep throat quite often. I've probably had it 10 or 12 times in my life, and it's been miserable every time. So I'm sitting there in the doctor's office, and the doctor is saying, all right, we're going to test you for flu, we're going to test you for COVID, and I said, you might want to throw a test for strep in there too. I, I've had it enough. I think, I think that's what's going on here. So they test, and he walks, I, I, I wait about 20 minutes, and he walks back in the exam room, and he has this weird smile on his face, and I, I, I say, okay, what's going on? And he says, well, you got two out of three. And I was like, congratulations, thank you. I, I don't know how I should respond to that. Uh, he said, you got flu and you have strep. And so we're going to get you prescribed some antibiotics. We're going to get you some Tamiflu. And you have to quarantine for a week. And at that point, I was like, okay, yeah, you're going to tell my wife that? Uh, with two small kids, how are we going to navigate that? Uh, truth be told, Amanda did great on kid duty that week. But here's the point. We go to the doctor when we get sick. We Google when our throats start to itch, when we get a cough, when we feel congested. We Google, we look up on WebMD, what do I have? What, what is making me sick? We do a really good job of recognizing symptoms of physical illness and then trying to diagnose what the sickness is that lies beneath so that it can be treated. But for as good a job as we do is that, as, as good of a job as we do medically with that, Many times we don't do a good job of it in regards to our hearts and our trust in God and the trials we navigate in life. In Luke 12, Jesus addresses the relationship between symptoms, covetous, covetousness and anxiety, and sickness, which is a lack of trust in God. And he offers a cure that totally turns our understanding of money and possessions and our relationship with them, he totally turns it on its head. Do you covet what other people have? Do you struggle with anxiousness or worry about whether or not your needs will be met tomorrow or six months from now or three years from now? Longingly looking at what others have or anxiously worrying about what your future holds, these are symptoms. But now Jesus addresses the underlying sickness that is going on there. So what I'm going to argue from this text, what I'm going to exhort you to do Trust God with your money and your future, and you will know His good pleasure in caring for you. Let me say that again. Entirely trust God when it comes to your money and your future, and you will know His good pleasure in caring for you. I invite you to follow along as I begin reading our scripture text, our sermon text from verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. 
and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you. For many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are about to eat, or what you are to eat, or what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's word. May he write its truths upon our hearts that desperately need it. Jesus has this incredible ability to reveal both the difficulty as well as the delight of a life surrendered to him. And perhaps no topic reveals this more clearly than him addressing something as sensitive as money and possessions. This passage will sound difficult, but if you lock in carefully following Jesus, trusting him that though that which seems difficult, that he will guide you through it, you will find inexhaustible delight in our good Heavenly Father. So we're going to navigate our way through this passage through seeing Jesus give, he gives two commands for anyone who would follow him. So he gives two commands uh, to, to warn it, guard against covetousness and, and do not listen to the anxiety that, 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 that plagues our minds. And then he, underly, he gives us this underlying hope that gives us the ability to do both of these. So the underlying hope that, that, that helps infuse this, infuse these commands is given to us at the end, okay? So first command, guard against all covetousness because it will blind you to reality. This is in verses 13 to 21. This interaction begins with a man in a crowd asking Jesus to tell this man's brother to share the family inheritance with him. In Jesus' day, a family's inheritance all went to the oldest son, and then the oldest son was responsible for dispersing it out to siblings and other family members as was appropriate. Naturally, this could, understand, this could lead to strained relationships within families. 
If you didn't feel oldest brother was uh, uh, doling it out as quickly as he should or didn't feel that he was doling it out in an appropriate manner like he should have, it's constrained relationships. So this man cries out to Jesus, hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus responds, hey, who made me an ar- a judge or arbitrator over you? I'm not here to solve that problem. But then Jesus gets to a more bedrock response in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Do you realize this? Upon hearing this very reasonable complaint by this man, whose brother is depriving him of his share of the family inheritance, Jesus tells him instead, take care and be on guard against what? All covetousness. That word all is really troublesome. Are you getting the short end of the stick in some family financial dispute that you're currently involved in? Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Are you getting treated unjustly by your employer when it comes to your pay and your, or your compensation, and you're frustrated knowing that you should be paid more or paid equally with those who are performing the same work you are? Take care and be on guard against all all covetousness. The brilliant scholar Dale Ralph Davis told this illustration to help us to see what Jesus is doing in this response. He tells us still illustration from during World War II, both sides, both Axis and Allies, built a number of dummy aerodromes that sported wooden planes in them. And so in Amsterdam in 1940, the Germans completed, completed a very large installation of this entirely fake airfield with, uh, with, with uh, at least 100, maybe hundreds of wooden airplanes that they had built with the hope that the Brits would see them and use their, the, their actual real bombs on the fake planes and thus deplete their supply of weaponry. Well, Time came, the Brits saw it, the next morning they dropped these bombs uh, and just leveled the aerodrome. But then the Germans looked at it and they realized that they had dropped bombs made of wood. The Brits were simply saying, look, we know what is really there. And that is Jesus' work here. He implies that we may dress our circumstances up in terms of justice and equity, when in fact covetousness and greed And even idolatry are what is really there. Now, you might respond to this. You might say, okay, what are you getting at, Jesus? Do you not care about justice? Do you not care about right or wrong? Should I never ask for a raise or a promotion? Is that what you're you're, you're getting at? Well, we're going to get to this in just a little bit. But just set at a surface level, we have enough from Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels as well as the whole scope of Scripture To know that God is far more concerned with justice and correcting wrongs than we actually are. But Jesus actually knows your heart is far more complicated and even devious than you realize. Look again at how Jesus explains this in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he tells a parable that reveals the danger of covetousness. This parable begins at the end of verse 16. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, back in Jesus' day, they did not have investment accounts. There was not a stock market. There was not Wall Street. The way that wealth was accumulated, the way that wealth was acquired, was in an agrarian sense, gathering crops, increasing your land holdings, increasing your livestock holdings, building barns uh, 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 and, and bigger farms that could all testify of and increase your wealth. So Jesus issues this warning. He's saying when you look around and you covet what your neighbor has, or when you yearn for greater financial means yourself, you are not just innocently daydreaming, but this is actually a gateway drug towards disbelief in God. Interestingly, this imagery of the man who had to build bigger barns and says to himself, eat, drink, be merry, this actually echoes the book of Ecclesiastes and the individual who does not know God. In fact, look at this man again in verses 17 to 19. And note how every thought of his is oriented around what he has done for himself and how he believes his wealth will meet his needs and will satisfy his heart. Just look at this. Beginning in uh, verse 17, and he thought to himself, look at all the times there's, there's a, what, what is it, a first person plural or first person uh, pronoun there. He thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There's 11 times that I or my is mentioned just here. This man is entirely reliant on his own self-sufficiency. He had built the good life, but there's only one problem. It was a good life built on a bad lie. You may not consider yourself an atheist. In fact, the chances are pretty great that if you are gathered here on a Sunday church morning in October 2023, that you don't consider yourself an atheist. Maybe you do, and you're just here because somebody brought you here. If that's the case, we are glad to have you. We are delighted for you to to, to worship with us or or to to observe us worshiping, let's say. We invite your questions or your curiosity or even your objections to Christianity. I would love to speak with you after our service and get to know you a little more. But anyway, most of you probably do not consider yourselves atheists. But Jesus says the individual whose hope rests in the accumulation of his or her wealth, their hope rests in the entry into a life of luxury and ease and even peace earned by your business accomplishments or your good fortune or your inheritance. If this is where your hope lies, Jesus says you are a functional atheist. You see, the human heart is not difficult to understand. We just don't want to understand it. 
we think our hearts can be passionate about God and also truly passionate about our business or achieving a wealth that we desire or truly passionate about finding love that we yearn for or truly passionate about fulfilling the deepest longings of our hearts for our children or for our grandchildren. And we give ourselves to all of these different dreams that we have. But Jesus says our hearts are actually incapable of running at capacity in 20 different directions. You cannot serve God in money. When Nathan's famous hot dogs opened in New York City in 1916, the owner hired a group of actors to dress like doctors and stand outside the hot dog stand and eat hot dogs, thus giving the impression to passers-by that the hot dogs were in fact healthy to eat. That's how the human heart is. We covet and we think, this thing will give me the good life. We observe the allure of riches, the promise of luxury, or even just the, 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 what we think would be a sweet mercy of not having to worry about how we will pay the bills. We see that, but it's actually the, dress, the actor dressed up like a hot dog lining someone who has clogged up arteries, lining them up at the hot dog eating contest and telling them that eating 70 hot dogs in 12 minutes will actually be good for them. Jesus says it will destroy your soul. And this is what happened to the man in the parable. God said to him, verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now Jesus knows that we might hear him warn against covetousness and we might be tempted to ask, well, okay, Jesus, I normally track with you on these things. But if I don't make sure to take care of myself and my family, who will? What will happen to us? Are you saying just don't even think about money? What am I supposed to do? Well, we move on from to verse 22 to 31, where Jesus then tells us if He is said to be on guard against all covetousness, secondly, He tells us do not listen to anxiety that tells you that God is not good. Do not listen to anxiety that tells you that God is not good. Pick up in verse 22, and He said to His disciples, therefore, so that therefore, He's building this argument based on what He just said. So if he's showing them that the emptiness, the deceitfulness, even the dangerousness of trusting in riches, now he's saying, therefore, because of that, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Do you see the relationship that Jesus is drawing here between take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, and therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life? He's drawing a connection here, showing us the power of, of money and possessions to, to make promises to us that rob us of trusting in God. He knows that money and possessions, they wrap their tentacles around us, they suffocate our souls. And he says, do not listen to your anxiety that tells you God is not good. And he, listens, he lists two illustrations, the ravens of the air and the lilies of the ground. Verse 24, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. You know, birds don't fret about where their next meal is going to come from, and yet God feeds them. They are not 
dismayed or distraught or broken over downturns in the economy or in the market. They are not sleepless over the effects of geopolitical disaster upon what that will do to my 401k. No. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Make no mistake, they don't sit around and do nothing. They work. They work to build their nest. They work to go and scrounge for food, but God supplies it for them. Verse 24, how much more value are you than the birds? In your anxiety over what what the future might hold, you are telling yourself that you are of less value to God than the birds of the air. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Verse 25, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Now, I need you to hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying as we talk about this. Two, two notes here. For, so first, when you talk about anxiety, I know that there, there can be severe cases of anxiety that people can battle, have a lifetime of battling it, where they, they, they need medical care or they need medicinal care. It can be needed and good, and it's a gift of God's common grace that should be received as such. But what Jesus is getting at here is the general anxiety that we feel as we navigate through life wondering whether our needs are going to be met. This worry of our hearts is the language by which we tell God, A, either I don't believe that you are powerful enough to care for me, or B, I wonder whether you're good enough to care for me. And Jesus warns us against either kind of attitude. So that's the first note that I want to file away here. And secondly, we already kind of covered this, but do not hear this and think Jesus is saying, okay, don't work, just lean back, all your needs are going to be met. No, he says, look at the birds. They work hard. And yet we look from the outside and we see the ways that God meets their needs, do we not? See, the lie of the anxieties that we feel as we navigate the pressures of life is that they drain us of trust in God while not taking us anywhere that we can reach. You can't add an hour to your life by being anxious. Being anxious is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you absolutely nowhere. You are in the exact same spot when you're done rocking as when you start. And now listen to Jesus. We've considered the ravens of the air, but now look at the lilies of the ground. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. The lilies, the flowers of the field. Next time you're driving down the road and you just see just beautiful, what's blooming right now? The Montauk daisies? I'm not, I'm not a big green thumb, so yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. And, and you're just driving down. Just look and say, God clothed that thing because he delights in providing for his creation. And he's going to clothe me. Next time you worry about what today holds, what tomorrow holds, whether you're going to be able to navigate things financially, take 10 minutes and go walk outside. Spend five minutes looking at the birds of the air, seeing how they fly to the glory of God, their Creator. 
and then take five minutes looking at the blooming plants and say they bloom testifying of God's goodness. And then say, if he takes care of them, he's going to take care of me. Now, there's something absolutely fascinating in this story. I want you to look at verse 30. Jesus says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. You see the reference to the nations of the world? I think Jesus is saying something like this. Everyone else in the world, they get caught up, they get bogged down in worrying about where provision will come from. Just the way of life, the world, worry sells. Bad news travels further than good news. You get good news and you feel good about it for about 10 minutes. You get bad news, it ruins your week, right? We don't have to learn how to worry. We have to learn how to hope. And so Jesus is starting to steer our hearts towards, okay, where does your hope lie? And he says in verse 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. This is the general human disposition. But then he says, and let me tell you, and your father knows that you need them. You see that? Your father knows you need them. I want you to catch something. Throughout this passage, up to this point, every mention of God, every time he's been mentioned, it, 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 he, he, he's been mentioned and, and, and just described as God. But here Jesus now turns and refers to him as our father. He's saying, we do not hope in some kind of cosmic force that says, ultimately, everything's going to work out. It'll all work out in the end. No, God becomes our treasure where our lives are oriented around a deeper, unbelievable reality where, in fact, we find in Him grace of children adopted into His family. And let me ask you, parents, I know two things about you as parents. The first thing I know is that you would do almost anything to care for your children and their needs. But I know something else about you, too. You're not God. Your powers are limited. The scope of your reach can only go so far. But Jesus says, your heavenly father, remember your love for your children. And now magnify and amplify that and then know your father whose reach is not limited. Whose power knows no bounds. Whose goodness is full and free to his people. Know that he knows you need these things. And then seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. You will be miserable as a Christian. Okay, I I talked to atheists or those who maybe don't believe in God a second ago and now I'm telling you you're going to be miserable as a Christian. That's a wonderful sales pitch, right? Um, any of us, you will be miserable as a Christian if the aim of your Christian life is to bend God to satisfy your desires for what He would do in your life. But you will understand the grace and goodness of your Heavenly Father if you surrender those desires and you submit all your desires to Him and find unwavering satisfaction in His goodness and in His purposes for you. 
And you're hearing this and you rightly think, okay, Jesus, I get that, but let's be honest, it's easier said than done. Well, look at how Jesus gives us now an underlying hope for obeying these commands. Guarding against covetousness, not being anxious about your life. What is the underlying hope, the foundation upon which these pillars are built? If you're going to tell me, don't be covetous, don't be anxious. That underlying hope is this, trust that God's good pleasure is to make his kingdom your greatest treasure. I didn't mean for it to rhyme, but as I was writing it, I was like, yeah, that's good. Hear it again, trust that God's good pleasure is to make his kingdom your greatest treasure. Look at the heart healing words of Jesus in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. Let's just pause there. He doesn't say fear not head cases. Fear not troublesome ones. Fear not ones I'm tired of hearing from. I'm tired of your worries. I got it. You don't have to tell me again. No, he says, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure. Not your Father's obligation. Not His responsibility. Not a a part of His job that He doesn't really enjoy, but He does it anyway. No, it is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Dear Christian, worried about what your future holds. God does not reluctantly. God does not begrudgingly. God does not regretfully. God does not hurriedly. God does not frustratingly. God does not dismissively. God does not passively care for you. No, it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But note... It is not his good pleasure to give you all of your wildest dreams. To give you 8%, 10%, 12% returns on all of your investments from now until glory. It is not his good pleasure to give you the promotion that you desire. It is not his good pleasure to give you your perfect health that you so yearn for. No, it is his pleasure to give you the kingdom. So what is the kingdom? I think verse 33 actually helps us. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I want you to see something subtle here. So he says, it's a good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he says, sell your possessions, give to the needy. You know, take, take up a posture of life where you're not trying to gather, 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 gather. And that is in direct opposition to who? The guy he illustrated the parable of the man who built the bigger barns. And so Jesus is actually saying, the one who has entered the kingdom, the one who has seen the supreme value and worth of God, is the one who all of a sudden his possessions, his money, all that he has accumulated, just doesn't have the luster that it once did. And he now sees that his money is a vehicle not towards building his own kingdom, but towards building the kingdom of God. You see, here's how money and possessions are so powerful. They're so powerful in deceiving us into feeling like we have it made and and making us a slave of them. Or they are powerful as we radically, generously give them away. And recognize they are not our own, but they are a means by which we testify that we have a treasure greater 
than these things. Do you see the difference here? See, here's Christianity in a nutshell. If all this does, you just say, Stephen, this is a lot here. I don't understand what you're getting at. Here's how we understand God's good care for us and how it all, all works out. We, we, we've been created by God. And yet as human beings created in His image, we have rebelled against Him. The pain, the sorrow, the grief, even the fear of the future that our world fears is directly as well as indirectly related to the evil that mankind has brought about in sin that we have all committed in our hearts against God. Yet God has not turned His back on us and said, you're on your own. Good luck. No, He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our sin and to give us new life. So we are redeemed through Christ's cross. Get this, His Son was lost, was crucified, that you and I might be made sons and daughters of God. So our hope as Christians, who we are not immune from job loss, we are not immune from investments crumbling, we are not immune from terrible health diagnoses, our hope is this, God did not spare His Son, will He not graciously give us what we need as our Heavenly Father? And so we have a new reality that we as Christians operate in, where we look around and we look at all that we desire or all that we want to accumulate, and we can say either this is the good life, or we can say actually Christ is good. And I'm going to steward these other things that I have, whether it's my money, whether it's my time, everything, I'm going to steward those to magnify the glory and the supremacy and the ultimate worth of Jesus Christ in my life. We don't look at our stuff and say, this is the good life. We look at our God and say, He is a good God. We look around at one another in a church family and we look at Christ building his church to the ends of the earth and we say he is building his kingdom and I want to be a part of that. I want to invest in that. Now remember I told you earlier, hold on to the question of whether you should ever ask for a raise or pursue a promotion. You thought I was going to hope you forgot that. No. Sure, go for it. Ask for the raise. Pursue the promotion. But do so with a perspective that is oriented towards trust in your heavenly Father. It's His good pleasure to give you His love, for you to know that He delights in you, that you're redeemed by God the Son, that you're being transformed by God the Holy Spirit, that you're united with His church, and you are no longer weighed down by the grip of covetousness or anxiety that tells you that God is not good if you don't get the raise or you don't get the promotion. So do so but with your heart captivated by Christ and not captivated by the empty promises and the hot dogs that these, that these promotions and raises promise you that you know will ultimately destroy you if you set your heart on them. And so there's a thought, you might hear this and say, okay, Jesus is saying sell my possessions, give to, for the sake of the kingdom. And you wonder, okay, well, Stephen, get, tell me, how much should I give? What should I do? Give me an amount. I can't do that. That's between you and God. Jesus doesn't give an amount here. Interestingly, if you remember the encounter from last week where Jesus was talking with some Pharisees, and he was condemning them because what they do? They, they tithed out all of, their, uh, all of their everything, including like 
uh, mint and herbs and, and all, all of the spices in there. They tithed all these out, gave 10% of them for the work of, of, of the temple of God. And Jesus says, you are dead in your self-righteousness. And so it's really interesting here because Jesus then turns around and, and he doesn't give an amount here. He says, I assume he's not as concerned about the amount as he is concerned about the heart. And so now, I think that good wisdom in our giving, in our posture, is, is to take what would be a tithe, like 10%, and say, okay, that's a baseline from where I'm going to try to start, and, and I'm just going to try to be generous. But you might make, I, I even hate to go to specifics here, I'm using this as an illustration, you might make half a million dollars a year, and to guard yourself against trusting in your righteousness, you've got to give a lot more than 10%. Or you might struggle and get by on minimum wage and 10% you can't muster because you've got to pay the bills. Jesus doesn't give us an amount. He gives us a condition for our heart. Do you see that? Perhaps some of the most practically wise words I have ever read on this come from C.S. Lewis. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And can I show you something as we close? You're like, oh yes, please close. <laughs> this is hard, Jesus. Look at verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see this? You can read over this 20 times and totally miss it. He doesn't say where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He doesn't say, okay, whatever your heart is passionate about, you'll give your money to. No, he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you might be saying... All right, how do I get there, Jesus? Because I'm not there right now. My heart doesn't feel it. Jesus says, start placing your treasure there, and your heart will follow. You see that? You're radically generous giving to the work of the church. You're resolved to be generous to the poor, to the less fortunate. It will lead your heart to the place it must be. I almost feel vulnerable saying this. Like, like I'm telling you to carefully examine your giving, and I worry that you think if our giving goes up, that, that, that I'm going to show up next week with carefully coiffed hair, a flamboyant suit, shoes that cost three months' salary, teeth whitened enough that you need to wear those glasses that you can look at eclipses with to, see, to be able to look in my face. No, dear brothers and sisters. We give for the sake of the work of ministry because we want those in our community, those who walk up and down country way, those who go through the motions of life but inwardly wonder if there is more to life. We want them to find Jesus Christ who is life. Those who pull into our drive to drop their kids off at preschool and desire a bright future for their kids, but they're terrified of where they will find that bright future. We show them the future of a God, their Heavenly Father, whose good pleasure is to give them the kingdom through His Son. We give generously for those who struggle to put food on the table. We desire for them to be nourished and met, not only with bread that satisfies their hunger, but with the bread of life that satisfies their souls. 
We give that they may know Jesus who gave his life and that they may have new life. But Jesus says we also give for ourselves. We give that we may continually wage war against any notions of believing that we are just tourists in the kingdom of God. No, we are citizens. We are sons and daughters. Where are we tourists? Where are we just passing through? We are aliens and exiles in this world. But we are children of our God and Father in His kingdom. Covetousness, anxiety, whether your needs will be met, these are symptoms of a greater sickness, disbelief in the love of God. The cure is not to gather all that we think we need, but to know that it is our Father's good pleasure to make His kingdom our greatest treasure. Trust God with your money, with your future, and you will know your Father's good pleasure in caring for you.